Well, friends, this little book has been a source of great encouragement to me. Um, God has been teaching me in my study, in preparation for our study, uh, which should always be the case, and um, I, am, I am challenged by this book, and I hope that, that God is using this also in your life to, um, just to help you to evaluate yourself and to consider your walk with God. I, one of the, the simple applications here is that uh, really Jonah is a picture of us. And uh, we are so very much like Jonah. In fact, a number of you have come up to me and said, you know, I, I just relate with this guy so much. And I think that is something that we all can say, is that there are times when God has clearly given us instruction and guidance and direction and commands, and we have chosen to say, absolutely not, God. I am not doing that. I am doing things my way. And we then kind of fashion it and shape it and spin it to, to seem like we're following God's will, but we're not. We explain it away. And we come now to Jonah chapter 3. We've already seen Jonah really running from God, running away from his responsibility as a prophet of God. And um, that was in chapter 1. And of course, the whole scenario with the storm and the, and the ship and the, the sailors and, and Jonah ultimately getting to the place where he says, I would rather die than follow God and do his will in this one situation. So they throw him overboard. And then chapter, uh, chapter 2 primarily is that, that prayer that Jonah gives while he is in the belly of the fish. An absolutely incredible uh, account, uh, a real account of his time in there and what God was doing in his heart. And uh, we notice um, at the end of verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah uh, out upon dry land, which then leads us into chapter 3. So the question is, what is Jonah going to do now? What is the next step in this grand story of God's mercy and God's grace and God's heart for the people of Nineveh? And um, it is going to be a, a section of Scripture that will be helpful for us, I am sure. Would you join me in a word of prayer, though, as we just prepare ourselves for this? Lord, we desperately need for you to speak into our lives this morning. Lord, we, we need for your word to be clear, for your Holy Spirit to be active, and Lord, we, we desire for our hearts to be tender. Lord, would you fashion and shape us from our time this morning. Lord, would your word continue to have an effect on us, even as we gather for home groups tonight or as we're uh, spending time this week meditating on the things that we have learned Lord, help us, Lord, not just to sit and, and listen and let it go through, but Lord, may it take root, and may you accomplish your purposes, Lord, in our lives. And I ask, Lord, that uh, even, Lord, through my weakness, that you would accomplish your purposes this morning. Uh, Lord, you know what it is that you desire to do, so Lord, have your way with us, we ask in your name. Amen. There's a very important word in our uh, English language, and it's a word that has been lost to some degree, I would say to a large degree within our Christian culture. Um, it is the word that has been squeezed out by soft, seeker-sensitive approaches to reaching the world that says, don't allow your Christianity or the message of Christ to be offensive to those that are maybe coming to a gathering of people. 
uh, that you would call a church, of course. It's a word that those who are satisfied with a shallow walk of God don't want to hear, or at least not in the way that it should be communicated. I guess it's, it's not a bad word in the sense if it's brought up casually, but don't bring it up with weight. Don't bring it up as you're pressing it on my heart. And that word, friends, is the word repent. And friends, this is a word that our Christian culture ultimately does not like. Now, for many who have kind of grown up in a cursory fashion in the church or in our culture, the the word repent brings to mind some, some Puritan preacher with a bony finger screaming and yelling at a congregation, right? And it has a word that has this, this idea of harshness and brutality and, and uh, really something that is unnecessary and it certainly isn't Pollyanna-ish. You know the story of Pollyanna where you know, she basically confronted the pastor because he was always preaching about sin and he had to change his message. And when he did, boy, people just started to come. And so much of that has happened in, in American Christianity. And friends, we, we must be honest about the fact that it probably has affected us. That when we hear this word repent, it's kind of like, oh, are we really talking about that? I really don't want to hear about that. But friends, the word repent is a word that comes right out of Scripture. And it's not like an obscure word where you can go to some obscure passage and you find, oh, there's the word repent. See, there it is. Just one time there listed. No, this is a word that is used throughout the word of God. The Hebrew word or the equivalent of that word is used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. Talking about either God's people repenting or not repenting or God pleading with them to repent, to change their ways, to turn away the same word, the same idea, the same concept. When we get to the New Testament, we see this word used um, in a number of different ways. But friends, understand this. Without repentance, there is no conversion. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Without repentance, there uh, is no possibility that you and I can be called the children of God. Repentance is absolutely necessary in the paradigm of the gospel. And we must see that a repentance empty gospel is not the gospel at all. It is a false gospel. It is a substitute gospel. It is a deceptive gospel that leaves people with the false understanding of having come to God through Christ. But they really haven't. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have walked an aisle. They may have done something that seems religious or even seems biblical, but it it isn't a heart cry to God for sins that have been committed and a plea for His forgiveness to be granted to us because we deserve His wrath and Jesus Christ hung on the cross as our substitute and, and took that on Himself. Oftentimes, the gospel message is, do you want to believe God? Believe him. Add him to your life. There it is. Just say yes. That's all you have to do. Just say yes. And we're left confused as to what the gospel really is. And friends, repentance is the key ingredient here in our response to the gospel. What does repentance mean? 
Well, repentance basically means a turning away from sin and a turning to God. It means a, a repudiation of all those things that, that, that uh, are an offense to God and a turning and a clinging to Him as the only hope, as the only satisfaction, as the only substitute. And oftentimes, that's not how we respond. That's not how people respond to the gospel. It's like, all right, I want, I want God to kind of do something in my life so that I can have X, Y, and Z. I need your help, God, so get me out of this mess. That's not the gospel. The gospel is recognizing your sin and the sinfulness of that sin and your need for a Savior and acknowledging that in your heart and with your actions and all that you are turning to God completely and embracing Him as Lord and Savior. Now listen, our culture, though, would like a softer, gentler, distorted, unbiblical gospel. They'd rather have that, the truth. But listen, um, as we go a little bit through the book of Matthew, get your Bibles and turn to Matthew, and chapter 3 and verse 2. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Here is John the Baptist. He is coming as a preparation for Jesus Christ. And here is the message that he is saying in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the, the forerunner, the one who's preparing the way for Christ, is coming with a message of repentance. Then turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Now Jesus is in ministry. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? So John the Baptist is preaching repentance. Jesus is preaching repentance. Go to chapter um, 11 of Matthew. We'll begin at verse 20. Then he began, this is Jesus, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not, what? Did not repent. In other words, his the whole purpose of his work, the whole purpose of his mercy, the whole purpose of him casting out demons or healing the sick was ultimately that people would do what? Would repent. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now go to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel. Jesus is getting ready to send his disciples off into ministry. And here's what we find him saying. Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So when Jesus left, he left them with a charge to preach a message that included what? Repentance. Then Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 and 38. Here's Peter on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching, and after he's preaching, the people respond by asking the question, what must we do? Verse 37 says it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, 
Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, repentance is there. Now, um, one more passage of Scripture, Acts 17, verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. Paul is speaking to the men of Athens and here's what he says. In the course of his message, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Is this an obscure concept in the word of God? Absolutely not. This is at the core. This is what John the Baptist preached. This is what Jesus preached. This is what he told his apostles to preach. This is what the apostles did preach. This is what he calls us to preach. And my point here is this, just to show you the importance of repentance as it relates to how we come to God. And there are plenty of other passages we could turn to. But obviously for sake of time, that's not our purpose this morning. The point is that repentance is the message of the Bible as it relates to the gospel and our response to the gospel. So, Adding Jesus to your life is not repentance. Walking an aisle isn't repentance. Making a decision for Christ is not necessarily repentance. Praying a prayer is not repentance. But repentance is, as I said, a repudiation of the sin that God exposes in your life. It's a running away from anything that violates God's standards of righteousness. It's a radical whole life change that is clinging to Christ as your all in all. Now here's maybe a question, a way we can put it. How do we get ready to stand naked before the all-seeing God of the universe? Because one day we'll all have to stand before him, right? How do we get ready? We repent. We repent. Now, you say, well, doesn't Scripture say that we are to believe? Yes. And Scripture says that we are to repent. In fact, there are words that are used oftentimes synonymously, or they kind of support one another. But let me ask you this. If you say, hey, you know, so-and-so is a believer. Is that common in our Christian culture? And can that not be rather watered down? What if you said, hey, this person's a repenter. Does that change the picture a little bit? But you understand that to be a repenter, you have to be a and to be a true believer, you must be what? A repenter. And we'll get to that at the end of our time here, but understand this, that simply saying I believe in God or in a God is not repentance and is not a proper response to the gospel. It is a response, but it is not the kind of response that God is calling for us, that he is laying out for us. Now, having said all that, as we go to this chapter in the, and I was supposed to give you all this stuff, I'm sorry. See, now you can write it all down. All right? Um, I, I want to go over four aspects of repentance that flow out of this passage here. Four, you might want to say, avenues or, 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 or events that need to take place or actions that need to take place or dynamics of repentance. These are all fleshed out in this story. Maybe not quite as crisply as we would like. It's narrative. So some of the stuff overlaps, but please understand that, that, that from this passage, we have a great picture of repentance. Now, I'll be honest with you. I struggled this week in my preparation time because there are a number of issues in this passage I had to really wrestle with. 
one of those wrestling matches is asking this question, is what that is taking place here in this passage with the Ninevites, where they're you know, seemingly coming to God in repentance, is that true repentance? Is there really a revival taking place? Or is this just some kind of reform? Now, I came at it with a very, very skeptical mindset, saying, you know what, I'm not going to give this the, the, the freedom and the elaborateness just simply from a, from a cursory look. I'm going to come at it saying it's just reform, and you have to prove to me otherwise. As I've gone through this passage and, and, and read and mined, I've come to the conclusion that what we have here is not reform, that there is genuine repentance here. That there is a genuine change, that's a genuine um, uh, coming to, to know the God of Israel as a personal true God and, and a restoration of that relationship with the people from the city. And we'll flesh some of that out as we go along. And because of that, there are these principles, I believe, that flow out here that are helpful for us as it relates to understanding repentance. So first of all, true repentance is awakened by a divine confrontation. Now we need to do some background and just kind of prep the story a little bit here. As we mentioned before, the last time we saw Jonah, he was wiping fish juice from his bleached body, right? He'd just been vomited out of the great fish onto dry land. So God, the sovereign God of the universe, was not done with Jonah, even though Jonah was done with God, right? And Jonah had come to understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, that was the that was just the driving force last time, that, that everything was pushing toward that one statement. So here's Jonah, and he's now on this beach, and he has this, this mindset of understanding that, that salvation is not anything that I really have a choice in, meaning the salvation of other people. That is God's doing. That is what he is going to accomplish. And whether I personally like it or not, based on my prejudices, is really irrelevant. If God wants to bring salvation to a people, he has the perfect right and the freedom to do that. Now what we're not told, however, is what happens to Jonah between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. All right? How long has it been? Did Jonah come straight from the beach to the city of Nineveh? Or has it been a while? Did he go back to Jerusalem? See, we don't, we, we're not told... But there are some practical things that might help us at least get some perspective. Let's just assume that he landed on the beach and he went straight to Nineveh. Now the question is, what beach? If he was going to Tarshish, probably what beach, what, what sea and what beach on what sea would he be on? Mediterranean, right? All right you just didn't want to say it, that's all. all right? Mediterranean. Now, if you look on a map, and you see where Nineveh is, you will find out that it's, you go to any beach there, you're going to find that it's a long journey from that beach to the city of Nineveh. If he was on foot, closest direction, it would take him at least three months to get from a beach to Nineveh by foot. If he had a camel or a donkey, maybe a month. Now remember, he was going in the complete opposite direction, we don't know exactly what beach he landed on, but we know he landed on a beach and he was somewhere. It's also very possible that physically he had some, some trauma to his body because of being in that fish. We don't know exactly. Now this is speculation, but it's, 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 I think it's not 
um, improper to just realize, okay, this, you know, it wasn't like he was you know, vomited up on a beach and boom, there was Nineveh. Find the beach there near Nineveh and we can talk. Okay? You follow, you follow what I'm saying? All right, he, so there has to be a journey. And that journey has to go somewhere. And very likely, if it was the Mediterranean, where would he likely go to get ready for a journey? He'd probably go back to Jerusalem. He'd probably go back to his hometown. Remember, he left quickly, right? Now he's going to be obedient. All right, I'm going to go, but maybe I'll go back and I'll, I'll get stuff together. And you know what? As a prophet of God, he was, I'm sure, honored in that, in that country by those people. He had some stature because, remember, he was that popular prophet, remember? So it's also very possible that when he went to Nineveh that he didn't go by himself, that he had other people with him. Now, the text doesn't tell us all that. And the point that I'm trying to make is this, that oftentimes in narrative, it's not all that filler stuff that's really important. What's really important is what is revealed. Some of that stuff, though, makes sense, and we can put that into the picture here of what's going on. So it says there in verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So here God comes a second time. And this time Jonah didn't get out of his hut and turn left and go to Tarshish. He got out of his hut, well, he got off the beach, or if he was there in Jerusalem, he got out and he went toward Tarshish. He went the right direction. He went and he was obedient to what God was calling him to do. Verse 3, though, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Here we see God giving Jonah a second opportunity to listen to him and to be obedient, right? Now, you may have heard this statement before. God is always the God of second chances. Have you heard that before? Let me ask you a question. Is God always the God of second chances? Hmm. But I've heard it. I've heard sermon titles saying God is the God of second chances. He is always the God of second chances. I just, let's just go through this a little bit. Moses and Aaron, because Moses, and, Moses hit the rock, was not able to go into, they were not able to go into the promised land, right? No second chances there. You disobeyed, boom. This is what's going to happen to you. There was a prophet in 1 Kings 13 who ate and drank when God specifically told him, commanded him not to. And he was mauled by a lion. He didn't get any second chance. How about Ananias and Sapphira? You know, they come in and offer their money looking great one at a time, you know, and all of a sudden, boom, ah, they die because of their disobedience. You know, God didn't say, ah, I'm just kidding, give you a second chance. How about Achan? I mean, how about all the innocent party in this Achan story, the family that died with him? Did they get a second chance? Nope. How about Uzzah? You know Uzzah? Good motives. The Ark of the Covenant is being carried on a cart. Gore? That was disobedience on their part, but it was still being carried on a cart, and the ark was going to fall. God's very ark was going to fall, and so he reaches out and touches it to support it. What happens? Dies instantly. No second chance for him. Now, guys, just say this. Be very, very careful. 
that these, these things that are thrown out in biblical Christianity here are not always necessarily completely accurate and true. It preaches well. And a soft, gentle Christianity likes it. Don't people like to hear, God is the God of second chances. And so that means, you know, wherever you are, it's okay because he's going to give you a second chance. That's not always true. It's a lie. But if you're breathing today, guess what? It's giving you a second chance. Right? But don't presume upon it. And that's the folly that goes with a statement like that. You must be careful. Jonah here is given another chance. He's given another opportunity to be obedient to God and to do what God's called him to do. Now, back to the text. It says, now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's take a moment here, and let's look at the city. Let's look at the city. It says, it says this was a great city. Now, if you have an ESV, and you have a little, a little letter next to that statement, go into your margin, or go down to the footnote on the bottom of your page, and what does it say? A great city to God, or a city to God. You say, oh, whoa, whoa, what's going on there? Actually, the literal translation would be a city belonging to God. And the idea of that is this, that God has chosen Nineveh to be a city that was going to be the recipient of his favor. So you have to ask yourself this question, why Nineveh? Were there other Assyrian cities? So why Nineveh? What was the biggest? Well, hold on a second here. We're not told why. We're just told that God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. He's not going and he's not preaching to any other Assyrian cities. He's just preaching to Nineveh. And in the Hebrew, the idea is this is a, this is a unique possession of God. And God is favoring Nineveh. Do they deserve it? Absolutely not. Doesn't that sound like something? They didn't deserve God's favor. They didn't deserve God's, God's care and his message of, of uh, judgment, which ultimately has behind it what? Restoration. Hope. Now let's look at the journey. Let me get a little confused with this, and I understand it says the journey that, in our text, it says three days' journey or three days' breadth. A day's journey. Now, is this referring to the size of the city? Possibly. Um, historians recognize that Nineveh was a large city. If you remember, at the end of chapter 4, it does talk about the 1,200 that couldn't discern from the left hand to the right. So, certainly a lot of people. Um, and uh, actually, archaeological evidence shows that it was a, it was a really large place. And it, probably the size of the city also includes the, the suburbs that would be around it. But there's something interesting that took place, and that did take place in the context of that particular culture of that day that I think has some bearing here. I think it's probably referring more to the cultural protocol of the day. And, and just hear me out here. It's probably more likely not talking about the size of the city, 
but the actual protocol of someone who is coming in official capacity to a city with a message. Now, you may have to do some study on your own to, to see that and to, to, to see where that comes from. But the idea is this, that a person coming to a city would have three days to accomplish his purposes. There would be the first day of arrival. The second day would be the official where you meet the dignitaries and the leaders of the cities. Uh, and then the third day is basically when you leave. Okay. Now, um, you know, we have in our minds this picture of Jonah getting to Nineveh and then he's running around the whole all these different neighborhoods preaching this message, preaching this message, right? Except he's going as, a, as someone with a message from God, and he is going to preach to that city. And, of course, when you preach to that city, you're also ultimately going to get to that, those people in leadership. And so I, just, I really believe, based on the Hebrew text here, that what's being talked about has more to do with the, the manner in which he goes based on the protocols of that day, okay? So day one, he arrives, and as he arrives, we're told in, that, in this passage that he began to preach, right? And people began to respond. Now let's look at the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the message that God wanted Jonah to preach. It's also the only message that we have recorded in this book, and it appears that he did this repeatedly. But as we read through the book, we understand that the people had a more complete and more specific understanding from Jonah. Because at the end of chapter 3, um, back to, look if you would please at verse 8, chapter 3. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Oh, wait a second. That's not the message that Jonah preached. How would they know that that was the issue that God was calling out judgment on that is revealed in chapter 1? Because he sends Jonah out. Look at chapter 1, right, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. So it's very likely and very possible that what we have here is a, a summary of the message of judgment, but Jonah elaborates on it, identifying some specific things that the people were doing and the reason why this message of judgment is there. So we have this city, this journey, and this message that are all three part of this, this package of, of this understanding. Now, this is all kind of foundational background stuff to get to the first point. True repentance is awakened by a divine confrontation. What is it that happens here? God speaks his word. Now, friends, this is a pattern throughout Scripture. This is a pattern anytime you see revival in the Bible. The word of God is revealed. The word of God is spoken. The word of God is pressed. People are confronted with the word of God. Now, it's important that we understand the word confronted. To confront people with the word of God means we're saying, here's what the word of God says, and here's its effect on you. As opposed to just reading it and just kind of letting it go out there. The book of Nehemiah talks about the fact that, you know, the word of God 
under Ezra had been present, but the people began to chant, bring out the book, bring out the book, and they hadn't had that kind of instruction for years. And they brought out the book, and they built this big, huge platform, and all these people gathered to hear Ezra read. I mean, thousands of people, and we have to understand that because there were so many people, they needed other people to go down into the people and to explain what was being read and to actually apply what was being read to the people's lives. They pressed home the truth of God's word, and it had an effect on the people. Jacob, having a period of silence, hears a word from God, go to Bethel. And from that word, he's awoken in his sinfulness. He recognizes that he needs to clean out the idols that are in his house. It's all because the word of God is presented and it's pressed down. And friends, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is a, it is a divine purpose to confront us with his word because when he does that, it brings about, it awakens in us repentance. Now here's the thing that we must be convinced of. That repentance for a believer is a good thing. See, we're like, well, I don't know if I really should repent because what will people think if I'm repenting? As if that's a bad thing. Repentance is a good thing. And if you hear or you see someone on their knees crying out to God because of sin in their life, as a believer, you're not saying, oh, well, why would, go home and do that. Don't do that at church. Is that how you respond? I hope not. You're like, you know, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're doing something in this person's life and they're crying out to you, right? But we're almost ashamed of it. Repentance is I mean, it's a key part of our walk with God, and it should be something that we welcome, we desire. And that means then that we should hunger the Word of God, not just being taught to us, but being pressed on us. And we should love being confronted with the Word of God. And if it sticks anywhere, be thankful that God is exposing our sinfulness, that we can see what it is that He's pointing out, rather than just say, hey, let's just rah, 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 we love Jesus, don't we? Let's go out now. When God says, I want to grow you, I want to mold you, I want to I strengthen you, I want to mature you, that comes by means of repentance. But oftentimes that's not what we want. And so we fall short. So the word of God is, is, is pressing down on these people. Now, there are some other things that are going on too. Um, God always accomplishes his purposes in his wisdom and in his way. But historical records show a couple of things were happening to the Assyrians at this time. Number one, they were losing battles. Their, their borders were getting smaller. They were being challenged in many places. Secondly, there was internal fighting going on within their people. Third, there were some um, times of economic crisis as a result of famines. Um, one significant event had taken place. There was a solar eclipse. And in that particular culture in that day, the way they viewed their religious thinking was when there was a solar eclipse, bad things are going to happen. Huge changes are going to take place. And it was prophesied that a commoner was going to come and usurp the throne. And the king wasn't going to be there anymore. Secondly, that there was going to be a great famine. So there's all this kind of panic going on. How many of you guys remember Y2K? 
Do you remember the feelings that you had, even though maybe you were confident that it wasn't going to be that big of a deal? I mean, you were confident, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but I better get some water, <laughs> right? I better have some cans, you know. Um, we, we lived in Michigan at that point in time, and just down the street from us was a gas station. And the day before Y2K, people are lined up at the gas station. I mean, just lined up. They're just, we're going to get our full. We're just going to fill up everything just to make sure we have it. And they're bringing all the extra things because, you know, we want to make sure everything's going to be okay. And there's this feeling of panic that is natural. And listen, all, people all across the East Coast have been experiencing that panic right now, haven't they? With Irene coming through. I'm a huge storm. You don't know what's going to happen and the effects of that. God uses those things to get us to a place where we may be ready and ripe for hearing the gospel. Now, one of the greatest opportunities the church had during a course like Y2K was to say, listen, you can trust God no matter what. Here's the gospel. Not here's a can, put it in your refrigerator or your garage, right? And so here we have the Ninevites who are experiencing some stuff in their culture that it's just all part of God's sovereignty. And Jonah shows up and he preaches a message. And his message is what? Um, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's just one more thing to add to the whole picture of all the stuff that has been going on. And friends, it certainly is something they respond to. But the first thing we need to note is that true repentance is awakened by divine confrontation. And I, just, just by means of application, friends, hear this. Don't view your Bible reading as simply something to get through. View your Bible reading, view your sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word, view your time together at a home group as an opportunity for God with his word by the power of the Holy Spirit to awaken your heart to the areas in your life that need to be diagnosed by him. And be thankful that true repentance is awakened by a divine confrontation. It is God that's doing it. Secondly, true repentance is evidenced by a wholehearted reformation. A wholehearted reformation. This is what we see by the response of the people and ultimately also the response of the king. And this reformation is evidenced both internally and externally. I've used these two words. First of all, the word belief. In their belief, um, this was the internal part, right? This is what's going on in the heart. This is where they're saying, we believe what God is saying. We believe this message that Jonah is preaching, that, that his God is going to bring judgment. Now, what kind of belief, though, is this? We know Scripture tells us that the demons believe Right? And they tremble. They don't necessarily believe in God and say, ah, we're going to bow down and worship you. They believe that he exists. Satan believes that God exists, but he's rebelling against him. So it's possible to believe in God in that sense, but not to truly believe him. So uh, what is going on here? Well, it's interesting. Uh, in Hebrew narrative, often there's this pattern. Um, and the pattern is to give us at the beginning the outcome to mention that first, and then to explain um, how that actually took place. 
and what the basis of that is. And it seems like we have that here because we're told that they believed God and then they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So there's this kind of this, this pattern going on here of, of saying this is the end result. This is, this is the reality of what's going on with them. Let me show you the evidence of that externally. Now, let's look at it externally here then. It's not just belief, but it's also behavior. There's fasting. Um, notice what it says. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In other words, that's kind of a, a redundant statement. The greatest of them to the least of them. That just means what? Everyone, right? Um, and then ultimately, the king is touched by what he hears. This word um, where it says here, reached the king. The idea there is that, is that he was affected by it. He was touched by it. He was moved by it. It wasn't just, oh, I heard it. and You know, that's nice. Okay, let's do a fast. It was something happened with him too. He was actually moved and he was, he was motivated to do something. And so he calls then uh, also for a fast ultimately. But we're told specifically that he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now, this is a huge picture of, here's the, here's the you know, head honcho taking off his royal garments and putting on sackcloth. All right, definitely a picture there of mourning, sitting in ashes, a sign of deep humiliation. Um, this, this message that was preached to the people is now getting to the king. And it all, this all happens on the first day. I mean, the first day the message goes out and it finally gets to the king. And so the king now gives this proclamation. And notice what it says. He issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Say, this is really unusual stuff in there, isn't there? When was the last time... Um, you told Kitty, um, you're not going to eat today, you're going to fast. Or told your dog, you know what, no food for you today, um, you're going to fast just like me. In their culture, they would use animals in that way to accomplish their worship. Now just imagine what this would be like. I, I don't think the picture here is all the cattle that are, that are on the field that they're taking care of, although some of that would be true. You can't you can't stop an animal from reaching down and grabbing some grass, right? But typically, if it's a domesticated animal, what do you have to do? You have to provide water. You're providing the grain or the food for those animals. But if you kind of bring it more internally, I mean, every morning I get up, I come down the stairs. This is around 5.40 or so. And who's there to meet me? It's Kitty. Now, the name of our cat is Kitty. Okay, just so you know, because we just want to be really, really creative, because no one else <laughs> names their cat Kitty, so we thought we would. Um, so Kitty meets me there, and she's meow, 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 meow. What does she want? Water. And if I don't give her water or food, it's meow, meow, meow. Okay, her life is a full life of moving from one couch to another couch, kitty litter, and eating and drinking right? And that would be a wonderful life to some degree, wouldn't it? 
But if I don't give kitty food, meow, meow, meow. Now, can you imagine animals in a city not eating, not drinking? What would that sound like? All right? So you, you can understand the impact of this. That the animals themselves, by their bleeding, by their barking, by their meowing, or whatever else animals do, whatever kind they are, by all, all of that, they're adding to the chorus, pleading, and crying out to God. That's the idea behind this. Now, this is not a paradigm for us to follow, okay? So don't go home and tell Kitty, all right, you're going to fast today, okay? But listen, here's the deal. Cultures that have not experienced you know, biblical culture are going to function within their own culture and their ways to, to praise God and to honor him. You understand that? I just recognize that that's likely what's taking place here. So there's this fasting, this mourning and humiliation. There's this crying out to God. Notice verse 8. It says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Okay, so that must be more domesticated, right? I mean, uh, to go out into the fields and cover every animal with sackcloth might be a little bit too much, right? Just say, just be wise here. And let them call out mightily to God, calling out with strength, with conviction. So there's a passionate calling out here. And it says, let everyone turn from his evil way. Now that word turn is the idea of this repentance from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So there's this proclamation that goes out. So there's fasting, there is this sackcloth, there's this ashes, which is a visible physical way of demonstrating your mourning for uh, the sinfulness of your sin, for um, also the, the humility that you are presenting before God because you realize that you are nothing in his sight. And then there's this crying out to God and um, ultimately crying out to God for mercy and for, for um, his, his removal of the impact of this judgment. And then to turn from your evil way um, and from the violence. And it's, it's very personal. Notice it says there, let everyone turn from his evil way and his violence. Now, what is that talking about? We know that the Assyrians in their conquest were very violent people. We talk about that the first time, how they would treat the people, their captives, and they'd you know, cut the hands off and their feet off and their ears off and pluck their eyes out and make these mounds and let nature take its course, which would not be pretty. Very, very violent, very, very vile in how they dealt with they're captives. But I also think that there's something internal going on here. That very likely violent people like that would also be violent among themselves and with their own people. Okay? Because um, I think if you're, if you're that cold to other people, you're likely going to be violent even you know, to some degree among your own people. So there's certainly a personal element that's flowing out here. So we, we see this whole being, this wholehearted response to God uh, and uh, his diagnosis of their condition. Now, this isn't some formula that we just kind of plug in and say, okay, you know, God, you pointed out a sin. I'm going to believe you. You're right. Now, I'm going to fast. I'm going to mourn. I'm going to sit in ashes because I've never sat in ashes before, except maybe at an airport somewhere. Um, that was supposed to be a joke, but they don't let you smoke there anymore. Um, I mean, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. When you sit in a place where it's just like, ugh, that's just nasty, right? Um, and there's this turning away from sin. Now, we, we can go at this in a formula, or we can go at this with a heart attitude that is really desiring 
um, to come before God and to be repentant. Now, guys, this is, this is the part where, where I can't say just do this. This is the part where it has to be real in your own heart. This has to be true. This is what you're pouring out. This is what you're saying. This is your ultimate response to God, okay? Turn, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I think this is a really important passage of Scripture because it gives us a little bit of the heart and desire of someone who truly is repentant. Now, this passage in particular is talking about the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was practicing incest, who was ultimately put out of the church and then is now being counseled to being brought back into the church because he truly is repentant. And then Jesus then, no, it's not Jesus, Paul is saying uh, to them, listen, you, you, you know, I, I've spoken to you harshly, I've, I've spoken directly to you, and my purpose in doing that is to not to cause you suffering, but I want genuine repentance. My goal is genuine, and there's a, there's a proper way for you to respond to what I'm saying and, and, and hear me out because they, they were struggling with this issue of repentance. So beginning at verse 10 of chapter 7, for godly grief produces what? Repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent on this matter. The point here is this. There's a number of expressions that are used here that describe a person who is repentant, who is doing all he can or she can to clear himself. That means if that person has offended someone, if that one person owes someone something, if that person needs to go and reconcile, they're doing everything in their power, they're doing all these different actions to make sure that their relationships and the effect of their sin has been reconciled. See, it's not just, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me, and there it's done. It's, God, you're right, you've exposed my sinfulness, I am, I am humbling myself before you, but now... Because I am seeking your forgiveness and have been granted it, I am going to go and I'm going to do the hard work that is necessary of a repentant person. And friends, many times we fall way short in that. We're happier to deal with things in the quietness of our heart, but we do not want to go to one another and be honest and confess our sin. But it's the right thing to do. It's the God-honoring thing to do. Well, let's move on to the next part of this passage. True repentance, thirdly, is characterized by a sovereign orientation. You see, the king had this proclamation. The people are fasting, they're mourning, they're covering themselves with sackcloth, they're sitting in ashes, they're crying out to God. They're turning from their evil and from their violence. But you know, someone can go through all those and it, it could be just going through the motions because other people are doing it too, right? Could be. But this repentance is characterized by a sovereign orientation. Notice what the, king, what the king says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, what is he saying by that statement? Well, go back to chapter 1 and verse 6 because it's almost an echo of what we've already heard. Verse 6, so the captain came to Jonah and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give 
a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, what's different here about the king is that the king has heard the diagnosis, has responded externally and internally with fasting, with sackcloth and ashes, by crying out to God, by, by turning from evil and from violence. All those things are true, but he is not presuming that all of that activity will bring about God's mercy. Now, here, here's where we, we need, to, need some clarification. Right? Sometimes um, we, we say to ourselves, God, I did what you want me to do. Now you have to do X. He's not doing that. He's not saying, I deserve your mercy. Look at what I did. I deserve your mercy. That would be a works-based approach to God, right? God, look at, look at how much time I spent in prayer, and I, you know, I committed this sin, and so I've, I've done all these rosaries, or I've spent this time in, in, you know, in, in giving, or in charitable work, or attending seminars, or whatever it might be. God, look at me. Don't I deserve your mercy? Nope. Those are all good things. And say most of those things are all good things, right? Not everything I said there, all right? Um, the things that we're seeing here are all good things, but they are not enough. They don't necessarily bend God to do what we want him to do. Because remember, salvation is what? Of the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. He is the one that determines who will be saved and who will not be saved. He's not also, um, he's not demanding mercy. He's not saying, I deserve your mercy. He's not demanding mercy then based on what he has done. But here, I think, is what he is doing. He's depending on God for mercy. In other words, I've done everything I can in my power to acknowledge you and what you say and to show my contriteness and my desire to turn and to repent of my sin and to follow you. I have done enough. Only you can do what you want to do by your mercy. Now, friends, that is a great place to be. You know why it's a great place to be? Because it means that we recognize that we don't manipulate God. That we're not just following a formula and saying, aha, there it is. That ultimately it is God that grants his favor to us and continues to grant his favor to us simply because he loves us and simply because he cares and he is a passionate and compassionate God. This is his orientation. Having believed in his heart, having behaved in a wholehearted manner, he does not assume that he has done enough. He places himself under the sovereign, merciful God. And now we get to the last part, repentance. True repentance is applied by, by merciful affection. Now throughout Scripture, we get glimpses of God that, that help us understand that he is an affectionate God. He weeps over Jerusalem, does he not? He talks about having compassion over all these sheep who don't have a shepherd. And there are many other places that we could go. Here, though, it says in verse 10, when he saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now get this. It isn't that God can be manipulated because he expresses emotion. He's not like us. (laughs) 
His emotions are pure. His emotions are fashioned by his other attributes, right? But rather that God is not woody. He's not mechanical. He is not gruff. When we talk about the love of God, we're not just talking about some mechanical attribute. We're talking about a genuine affection. And what we have here is God responding in genuine affection because he had set apart this city for his favor. And they have, under this message of judgment, they have come and humbled themselves under him and his mercy. And he is stirred with affection for them. You say, but isn't that manipulation? Well, no. I want, you, I want to take you to um, Jeremiah chapter 18. I want you to listen to this. Here's God again speaking. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. What is God doing in the story of Jonah? exactly what he says that he will do. So it's not, that, it's not that God was manipulated. It's not that God just kind of was going down this direction saying judgment, 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 and all of a sudden was like, oh, wow, turn around. No judgment, no judgment, no judgment. God already laid out a paradigm, and he's simply being faithful to his own paradigm. The people responded, and they responded in such a way that he granted them mercy. He granted them favor. Now, I would like for you to turn to another passage. I don't know if I have it. Yeah, I do. Luke chapter 11, verse 32. We're going to close with this. Say, so now, just bringing it all together here. What we have here is a picture, I believe, of a revival that takes place in a city because the word of God is preached. The word of God is proclaimed. It is pressed onto the hearts of people. People have, through other circumstances, been prepared, so to speak, but it's the word of God that awakens them. And the result of that is that their hearts then are diagnosed and they respond to God in a proper way. And the way that they understand in that context would be fasting, sackcloth, ashes, crying out to God, and ultimately turning from their evil and from their, um, their violence. And I see this really as a picture of repentance. Now, in, in this particular passage, it says this, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This is Jesus speaking. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And without getting into all the context of what's going on here, this is telling us that the people of Nineveh did what? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. But there is something greater than Jonah that is here. What is that something greater? He's standing right in front of them. You see, Jesus is ultimately the one who shows mercy. God doesn't have to show mercy in one sense, but in another sense he does by virtue of his nature. The fact that there is sin 
The fact that man, because of that sin, is under the judgment of God means that God has to pour out His wrath. But God also provides a solution in His Son, right? And He is merciful in doing that. He is gracious in doing that. That is part of His expression of love. But it also is part of supplying and affecting his character in the whole package. He's not just a God of wrath, but he is a God of wrath, and that wrath has to be poured out. But he's also a God who has compassion and has mercy and provides the solution in Jesus Christ so that when he hung on the cross there and he died for our sins, we who would embrace him as our Lord and Savior would be the recipients of God's mercy just like the Ninevites were the recipients of God's mercy. Did they deserve it? Absolutely not. Did they demand it? No. But they leaned and depended on God for whatever he was going to do, crying out for his mercy. Now, friends, we really just touched on the subject of repentance. But I want to I ask you a question. Are you a believer? Let me ask you another question. Are you a repenter? Much easier in our culture to say, I'm a believer. It's far different to say, I'm a repenter. Now, understand that both of those words mean I continue to do those things. You don't say, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And someone says, oh, yeah, yeah, I believed like 10 years ago. No, you mean, and still, you still do believe, right? Well, are you a repenter? Well, I did repent, you know, 10 years ago, but the life of a believer is daily repentance. It's not always in this grand scheme. It's every day, every time the Word of God is unveiled before us and it's pressed on our hearts we then say, God, thank you for revealing yourself to me. And you humble yourself before a sovereign God and you say, God, forgive me. I see it. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve your grace. But Lord, I plead for restoration in our relationship. And that's just a daily repentance and walk for a child of God. That is believing in Jesus every day. Is that who you are. Lord, I ask that you would help us today. We, uh, we struggle. We struggle with our sin, and Lord, so often we just don't, we don't want to talk about it in such a way, Lord, that may be open. It's our private dynamic in our life that we just kind of keep hidden away, and yet, Lord, we also tend to hide it from you, although we know we can't do that, but we think that we can. I ask, Lord, that just as a result of today, Lord, the, the weakness of our time this morning and just seeing this picture of repentance, Lord, would stir up in us a desire to do some work with you and, Lord, to see the sinfulness of our sin as you have exposed it today or whatever it might be. And then, Lord, to come humbly and dependently, Lord, on you, crying out for your mercy and rejoicing, Lord, in the forgiveness that you promised to we who are your children.
But Lord, there may be someone here that does not truly know you as their Lord and Savior. Who has gone through some kind of a superficial gospel and Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would begin to stir in their heart to, to see what is, what is necessary, Lord, what you are calling for, a whole-hearted, a whole-life change that only comes from you. Lord, would you reveal yourself in our hearts right now and allow these truths to settle, to take root, and to have their way so that we can be fashioned and shaped to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen.